There has always been places in the world where Christianity has been persecuted, where the faith once delivered to all the saints is being suppressed, where people even lose their lives for believing in Jesus. And we're going to be talking about living now in community, and it's easy for us to just think that one day is going to go on just like another, and largely unaware that there may come moments when, and there may come a specific time in which believers in Jesus here in our own world, in our own culture, in our own community, will be persecuted for what they believe to the extent that we will not be able to gather like we do. This is why living in community now is so important so that we will learn some lessons for the possible occasion when some freedoms would get stripped away from us. Many years ago, I was privileged to go behind the Iron Curtain and they had uh, at the border, there were armed troops and they had these big mirrors that they would look, walk around your car to see if you were smuggling anything. And they asked you this question. Do you have any drugs, guns, or Bibles? That was the question that was asked of you. Drugs, guns, and Bibles, the three evils as the communist world understood them. In uh, another occasion, I was privileged to speak at a conference in the Muslim world. Uh, there was a church that gathered uh, that were part of the oil exploration process, and this was a rather large fellowship of over 600 people that met in a gymnasium much like this. And... Uh, they met on Friday, which is the Muslim day of worship, because that was the day when people were off work. And people got bulletins when they came in. And when they left, they had to deposit their bulletin in a box because they were going to shred the bulletins because they didn't want the religious police to find literature that such a gathering existed. In fact, this church fellowship was arranged with ABFs, much like us, only those ABFs met in homes throughout the week with a plan that if they were ever shut down as a large group, they would be able to continue to meet in homes. Just a couple of years after I was there, uh, that in fact happened, and the entire worship team made up of Filipinos were arrested. And uh, eventually, they all were deported, uh, losing their jobs, and were deported back to the Philippines because they were identified by these religious police as those who were leading people in worship. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 through 24. This is the last section of 1 Corinthians as we wrap up this study that began last November, so almost a year in uh, our process. Uh, 
And we're going to be looking at living now in community. What it means to live in community so that should there be a day of evil come, we will be ready. But more than that, what does it mean for God to want us to live now in community while we share the joys of being able to gather as well? Uh, I will, because we've been at this series for so long that it's easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees. Next Sunday, we'll do a summary of this letter so that you'll have a bird's eye view of where we've been to talk about and think through what we have learned in our study in 1 Corinthians. For now, I ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 13 through 24. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Please have a seat. <clears throat> in verses 13 and 14, Paul tells us that if we are to live now in community, that it requires conviction. It requires conviction. Paul gives us five commands in these two verses on how we should develop conviction. Living now in community requires conviction. You know, when persecution comes, that's not the time to develop your convictions. <laughs> persecution has a way of stripping you of your convictions. It needs to be prepared in advance. So living now requires conviction. Verse 13, first command, be watchful, be on guard. Be alert. Look out. Look around you. Carol and I have just spent a couple of weeks out west where uh, I encountered a couple of snakes. That was kind of fun. Um, and there were all these warnings about flash floods and about bears. And, uh, you know, this thing about bears was interesting. Carol and I looked up this uh, thing about bear spray. Did you know you can buy bear spray for $9 and you can buy bear spray for $81? Now, 
Now, I don't know if there's a cost-quality relationship here, but when you encounter a bear, do you want $9 bear spray? You know, you want a bear spray that's going to work, right? Well, here, Paul says, be watchful, be alert. And you don't just say, well, I'm just going to maybe try this. But you need to be deeply aware of your surroundings. Be on guard to enemies and bad influences. Be on your guard against that. So many of us live lives that are just one event after another. And we aren't thinking about what's going on in the culture around us. We need to have an awareness. To be watchful, be on the alert. Be aware that your friends often determine your convictions. Now, this doesn't mean that we should never make friends of people that don't know Jesus. We should. But we should be aware that when we are about our lives, that often our convictions aren't determined by the objective analysis of truth and error. They are often determined by the people that we hang around. And we ought to be the ones who are influencing rather than the ones being influenced. Amen? To be on guard to enemies and bad influences. But also to the influence, be on guard to the influence of the evil one. You know, the scripture tells us we are not ignorant of the evil one's devices. We should be aware that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be on guard, be watchful. The second command is to stand firm in the faith. If you're in the habit of marking your Bible, you might want to circle the word the in that, in that phrase. Stand firm in the faith. Now, it is true that there's a time for us to question. All of us have questions, and there ought to be a place where it's safe to ask the questions that you have and to receive answers and to discuss and to think through questions of the faith. But what Paul is talking about here is that there comes a time in everyone's life when they come to a place of convinced conviction. That is, they know what's true and they will not be shaken from it. Uh, by the way, the reason I asked you to circle the word the there is that there is a body of truth that is described in the Bible known as the faith. To stand firm in the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Uh, he says a little later in verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith. Jude, in verse 3, says, although I was eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The word the in front of faith means that there's a body of truth that must be developed as a conviction. What is the faith? Well, 
God is one God existing in three persons. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is truly human and truly God. He died as a substitute for us, paying the penalty for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. And we have the Holy Spirit as our guide into the scriptures which God has given us as the guide for truth. That is pretty much a description of the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Third command. Act like men. Well, that's not politically correct. In this age of feminism, to say act like men sounds almost archaic to us, doesn't it? But there is the manly virtue of conviction and determination. And here Paul is specifically addressing the men of the church to be men of courage to face trouble head on. I think that with the rise of feminism, which is not altogether, by the way, a bad thing because there have been times where women were exploited and abused, but with the rise of feminism has come a decline of male courage. Male courage to excel, to mature, to be responsible, to get educated and trained. And that is true broadly in the larger culture, it's just true of men, but it is also true of men in the church. A decline of male courage to excel in their walk in the faith, to mature in their faith, to be responsible in their faith, to get educated and trained in the faith. Carol and I uh, last Sunday were at a wonderful church in Utah where they were commissioning students who were going off to Bible college. And they had three students that were there on the platform that they were commissioning to go to their first year of Bible college. And they described three others in their church that were going for their second year to Bible college or following years. I'm not sure how many years it was. All six of the students going away to Bible college were female. All six. Act like men. Paul is not telling the women of the church to act like men. Paul is telling the men of the church to act like men. So men, how is it that you're doing? Dads and husbands, are you leading your families in the reading of Scripture? Are you leading out verbally praying with your wife and with your children. Not just saying, yeah, I pray, but verbally, regularly praying out loud with your wife and with your children. What are you doing to learn more of Christ and the gospel? How is it that you are developing deeper and stronger convictions in the Christian faith, and experience. Act like men. The fourth command, be strong. 
Now, this is for everyone, both male and female. To be strong, to win over evil in yourself, and to win over evil in the church. Evil presses in on us. Temptation comes to us. And the, the command to be strong is especially to be strong over the evil that tempts us. And so all of us in the church, male and female, be strong to win over against evil. Both in ourselves and in the church. The fifth command is in verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Do everything in love. It's interesting that Paul talks about this idea of love here and having a conviction of love in the midst of a letter where he has been doing a lot of correction. Sometimes we think of correction as the antithesis of love, but it's not. Love and correction go together. And so, for example, when Paul talks about in chapters 1 to 3, quarrels in the church about leaders. Remember, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. That kind of debate. Do everything in love. Or their attitude toward Paul, which was held in question in chapters 4 and 9. Do everything in love. <clears throat> or the lawsuits that they were having against one another in chapter 6. Do everything in love. Or the fractured relationships between husbands and wives in chapter 7. Do everything in love. Or the abuse of the weak by those with knowledge in chapters 8 to 10. Do everything in love. Or debates about the role of women in the church in chapter 11. Do everything in love. Or the abuse of the Lord's table in chapter 11. Do everything in love. Or the failure to edify the church at its most sensitive point, the point of worship of Almighty God in chapters 12 to 14. Do everything in love. And what's the middle chapter in that one on the failure to edify the church in worship? It's chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Do everything in love. Do everything with a steadfast commitment first to God and to one another. Living now in community requires conviction. Be on guard. Be watchful, alert. Stand firm in the faith. Men, act like men. Everybody, be strong. Do everything in love. Living now in community requires conviction. Now in verses 15 to 18, living now in community requires appreciation of those who serve and love and lead well. Paul mentions here in verse 15 the household of Stephanus, who were the first in time to follow Christ in the Corinthian region. When it says they were the first converts in Achaia, Achaia was the province, kind of like the state of Illinois is for Bloomington Normal. Achaia was the province of Corinth. Corinth was the head city in this region, and the first converts in Achaia was the household of Stephanus. They were the first in their devotion of service to the saints. They've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Paul says, be subject to such as these. 
and to every fellow worker and laborer. To submit, be subject to them. This means to follow in the same steps that they are leading in. Submit to those that are like them. That is to every fellow worker and laborer we are to submit or be subject to them. What does it mean to submit or to be subject here? Well, it's the same word that's used in those marriage passages in the Bible about wives being subject to your husband. Uh, And so when it says that we should be subject to people like the household of Stephanus and to every fellow worker and laborer, it means that there are legitimate times in the church for men to submit to women, just as Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. To follow in the steps that they are serving or leading in. Now, some folks just have a hard time submitting. No amen on that? Some folks have a hard time submitting. They like going their own way. Uh, Especially when there's several ways to do things, they just want to do it their way. They see the direction that's laid out, and they go, yeah, that's not wrong, but I like my way better. The first church that I ever pastored... um, had a difficult time with this. We would try to mark out a pathway of uh, direction for the church, and there was always questioning it, saying, well, I think that there's a better direction, or I think there's a better way to say that, and so on and so forth. And so we could never get traction on direction. I was praying about this and trying to puzzle over it and trying to figure out why is this happening and I looked through the church directory and discovered that 37% of the church were involved in their own independent businesses and what that meant was that 37% of the people were used to every day deciding their own way and their own path And so that was one of the reasons why it was very difficult to gain traction in any particular direction because even if you said it one way and the person agreed with the general principle, they go, I have a better way to say it. They just had a hard time submitting. Here, Paul offers the command that we should not do that. Wherein there is a person leading even if they are not leading in the way that you would, you should follow them in their steps. Now immediately you're thinking, does that mean you follow them blindly? Or does that mean that you follow them into evil? That's because we have a hard time submitting that you're asking that question. Paul's not talking about that. Of course he's not. What he is saying is follow people who lead the church and serve the church well. So let me give one example of our church language. Our focus is um, seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. 
And we want everybody to use that language so that everybody from the nursery through the most senior of saint, when they're asked what's the focus of our church, they can say, we are seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ. And they can have some concept of what that means. Now, are there better ways to say that? Are there other churches that have different mottos or focuses or what have? Yes, yes, yes. But is ours wrong or evil? No. So let's just go that way. <laughs> let's just go together. You see, because going together is living now in community. That's what was important to the Apostle Paul. So, living now in community requires, then, an appreciation of those who serve and lead well. Um, verses 17 and 18. <clears throat> Have you ever noticed that there are people in your life or in your church that refresh your spirit? You ever notice that? That there's just some people that are refreshing to your spirit? Look at verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus because they've made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. These three guys were coming from Corinth to meet up with Paul at Ephesus and they made up for the fact that not all of the Corinthian church could be with Paul. And the refreshing of the spirit by supplying what was lacking didn't just refresh Paul. Those three guys were doing it when they were at Corinth. It happened regularly for them. So, living now in community means that we seek to refresh one another's spirits. Here's a couple of ways that you can refresh the spirit of others. Do you know that everybody that comes to church comes with some burden? So to ask people, hey, what burden are you carrying that I can pray for you this week? And then just take time to pray. Or whether it's in the halls or out in the parking lot or in your ABFs, wherever you are, to be, look, be on the lookout for how you can refresh someone else's spirit. Look at people who refresh your spirit. And then seek to imitate them in how they do that. Be a person that will refresh someone else such that when they leave here, they go, wow, I'm refreshed. And it's because of their encounter with you and others like you. To refresh the spirit. Verse 18 says uh, to give recognition to such people. This give recognition doesn't just mean pointing them out to others in a joyous way, although it involves that. To say, hey, this is a person that refreshes spirits. Come get to meet them. <laughs> that's not a bad thing, but that's not all it means here. It means any expression of thanksgiving or appreciation. You know, sometimes in the church, we have the idea that what we do, we do for God and God alone. And that's true. But then it goes on wrongly to say that therefore it's a distraction from our focus on the Lord to give attention or recognition to people who serve the body of believers and refresh our spirits. 
that's not true. And I think that here at East White Oak, we do a pretty good job of the balance. That is, we focus our attention on the Lord and the worship on Him, and we don't have an improper focus of giving pats on the back to various people, (laughs) along with taking offense when we ourselves are not properly acknowledged. That doesn't typically happen here, which is a good thing. But I just want to encourage you that as part of our focus of seeking to be worshipers, that it also includes the refreshing of other spirits and appreciating and showing that appreciation for those who serve the body of Christ well, even though we don't make that our main emphasis. Living now in community requires appreciation of those who serve and lead Now, in the last verses of 1 Corinthians, Paul says living now in community requires love. It requires conviction. It requires appreciation of those who serve lead well. And it requires love. Now, love, first of all, needs to be received. There's some people that just have a hard time receiving love. They're just like, they're stiff. (laughs) And we got to learn how to receive love. Verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. The Corinthian church needs to receive the love that the churches in Asia, and particularly Aquila and Priscilla, have given them. And by the way, Aquila and Priscilla are an amazing couple. If you ever get a chance to do a study of them, you should. Because here's something that's interesting. In Romans chapter 16... Paul is writing to Rome and he says um, to, uh, in chapter 16 of, of Romans, he says um, that um, Aquila and Priscilla risked their necks for my life. It says, greet also the church in their house. So Paul, writing to Rome, says to greet the church in the house of Aquila and Priscilla at Rome. Here, Paul's writing from Ephesus, and he says, Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings together with the church in their house. So what that means was that at some point in time, Aquila and Priscilla are living in Ephesus, and guess what? They have an ABF meeting in their house. This word church means gathering, and it means that it's part of the total church at Ephesus, And the church in their house at Rome, when Aquila and Priscilla were living in Rome, was also an ABF, a church of a, you know, gathering of about 80 to 120 people. So they were people of means who were able, wherever they went, to be a blessing to the church by having their home be a place where a large number of believers could gather. Pretty amazing couple, right? Love needs to be received. They send their heartfelt greetings, their hearty greetings in the Lord. Verses 20 and 21, love needs to be given and received. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, The first part, all the brothers send you greetings. Love has to be received. But then it needs to be given to greet one another with a holy kiss. This is a phrase that occurs five times in the New Testament, so it has some value or importance for living now in community requires some physical demonstration of the love we have for one another. Now, 
The kiss must be holy. There can be an abuse of affection in the church. So we need to be watchful of that. But I also want to demonstrate to you that there is an importance of physical caring and touch. Now, this varies by culture. So, for example, J.B. Phillips paraphrases this passage by saying, I should like you to shake hands all around as a sign of Christian love. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, pass the greetings around with holy embraces. The New Living Translation, greet each other in Christian love. The Living Bible, and give each other a loving handshake when you meet. So different people and different churches and different cultures will have different ways of expressing physically their love for one another, but there is an importance to caring and physical touch. I think that this is particularly important for those who are the most senior of us in our body because there are many folks who when they reach uh, that status of old age find themselves not getting very much physical touch and I would encourage you to reach out to them. Give them a hug or a warm handshake, you know. Don't kiss them on the lips, they probably won't like that. But. Uh, but the idea of giving a, a, a affection, and if they don't like it, trust me, they'll tell you. The point is, is that we're living in an age where we think that we can live, each of us, in our own individual world. There's coming a time, I believe, apart from revival, where there will be perse real persecution of Christians. And living now in community requires that we're well-practiced in how we can love each other, even in this physical demonstration. Uh, Paul evidences his love in verse 21 by taking pen in hand. Paul wrote most of his letters with a secretary, and what he did was at the end of his letters, he would take the pen in his own hand and he would write a greeting to them for two reasons. One was to show his affection to the people he was writing. And secondly, to be able to show this is me. This is really the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's not a fake letter, right? And so that was the way in which he wrote. First, most of the letter by a secretary, and then he would take pen in hand at the end. And that's what he does in verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So we've talked about love needing to be received, needing to be given and received. Now, all of that talk about love, I think, prompts Paul to think about the greatest of affections, which is our love for the Lord. Paul now talks about our supreme love in verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. If you don't have a love for the Savior, Paul says, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Let him go to hell. This seems, does it not, to be an unusually harsh way of expressing things for a man who devoted his life to taking the gospel to the lost. Why would he say this in such a harsh way? If anybody doesn't have a love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Well, I think it's because there were people in the church at Corinth who were leading others astray 
all the while that they were pretending to love the Lord, but they really weren't loving the Lord Jesus. It is for people such as this that our Lord Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul reserve their harshest criticism and judgments. The fakers, the hypocrites, the people who worm their way in to get their own agenda accomplished. And while Paul is saying, if those people who are pretending to be believers, they don't really love the Lord, let them be accursed. Now to love the Lord means that you love his appearing. And that's why Paul says in verse 22, this one word in Aramaic, Maranatha, our Lord come. It's Paul's plaintive cry for the Lord to come back. And isn't it true that all of us who love the Lord Jesus have that longing for his appearing? It's so true that we long for his coming. We want him to come. It's why as we sang today, I think that when we, got, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. A plaintive cry from Paul, our Lord come. A few weeks ago, I was preaching uh, a series of messages in Titus to some pastors in Mwanza. And the one uh, uh, message that it was very clear that the Holy Spirit of God showed up and we were just all taken to a different place. Like we were just enraptured by the truth of the text was in Titus chapter 2 beginning at verse 11, the grace of God. And we hung there on the grace and unmerited favor of God that brings salvation has appeared to all, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, those pastors understood that it was the grace of God that leads to the coming of the Lord Jesus and they were enraptured by that truth. Let us too have not just a love for one another, but a love for the Lord and for his coming. You know, one practical way in which you can make that real is to think about the Lord's coming every day and it's easy for us to forget one way you can make it true every day is make it a part of your prayer at mealtime. Just to add this phrase, our Lord, come. Lord, thank you for this food. Bless it to our bodies. Our Lord, come. Amen. <laughs> and then you'll be reminded and your family will be reminded every day to look forward to the Lord Jesus appearing. Paul concludes in verses 23 and 24, not just love for one another, not just love for the Lord, but now love in Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. After all of this letter correcting problems, Paul lands by saying, may God's unmerited favor in all of your mess 
May God's unmerited favor be with you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And then he adds, after having to correct them on many things, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. What an interesting way to end this epistle that's filled with corrections to say, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Living now in community requires conviction. It requires an appreciation for those who love and serve well. And it requires love. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, help us as we live in this present age, deeply aware of the struggles of life, but our lives are rapid and busy and we don't think about bigger things. So help us to think about those bigger things, to be people of conviction. Help us to look around and see those that serve well and lead well and to appreciate them and to think about how they refresh our souls and help us to refresh the souls of others. Help us to grow in our love and affection for one another, even demonstrating it in physical ways. And Lord, help us most of all to grow in our love for the Lord Jesus. And we do ask with the Apostle Paul, our Lord, come. May your grace be with this church, East White Oak, as it was with the church at Corinth. And may, your, um, may our love for one another abound. Lord, I pray that those who are in this room who've never put their faith in Jesus <clears throat> would embrace what Paul calls the faith, that Jesus came into this world and was the true God and true man. He, he died for our sins, taking our place. He took our punishment. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, bring an understanding and embracing of that truth. Not just a professing of it, but an embracing of that truth by faith, by real faith in Jesus Christ right now. Help the person who doesn't know Jesus to grow and believe the gospel right now, Lord. Lord, would you bless our fellowship in the days to come? It's possible that very troubled days may lie ahead. We pray for a revival in our culture, and we'll be talking about that over the next couple of months in how we can pray for revival in ourselves and in our culture. We ask for it. But Lord, we pray, even if not, that we would be a people of conviction, of appreciation, and of love. In Jesus' name, amen.